This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Monday, February 27th. They don't call them caravans in Europe, but they're every bit as risky. We start here. A boat full of migrants goes down off the coast of Italy. Many of those on board just didn't know how to swim. Some of them were found clinging onto pieces of the boat. Will dozens of casualties now affect the migration debate in Europe? California, yes, that California, is walloped by its biggest snowstorm in decades. This one is extremely powerful and unusual. The system is now affecting huge parts of the country. We'll get you up to speed. And with classrooms in turmoil, some Americans are learning black history by other means. She was just like, I had no idea Jefferson owns things. I had no idea Monticello was a plantation. Author Clint Smith describes the lessons many are learning for the first time. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. This weekend, countries around the world were observing the one-year anniversary of the beginning of the war in Ukraine. And it struck me once again just how generous Americans can be. The U.S. and Poland continue supporting us in our fight. They are um, showing their solidarity with um Uh, Ukrainian people. In the last year, more than 200,000 Americans have offered up their homes to Ukrainian refugees, according to the Department of Homeland Security. New York City has the most applications, but smaller cities like Seattle and Sacramento actually have an even larger percentage of residents who made their guest rooms available to families who need them. And yet, depending on the crisis and the country involved, the U.S. might not always be as welcoming. Well, in Europe, there's a similar dynamic. Picture way more Ukrainian refugees, 8 million of them now scattered throughout European countries, including some that have set up hardline immigration protocols to migrants from other places, Italy being one of them. I'm not saying these policies are random or ill-willed, but it does create a stark national dialogue when something happens like what we saw in Italy this weekend. Yesterday, we learned that a rickety boat carrying migrants across the Mediterranean had sunk under its own overloaded weight just off the Italian coastline. Let's go straight to ABC foreign correspondent Lama Hassan, who's been reporting on all this. Lama, what do we know? So, Brad, this is one of those stories that's a real tragedy. It's absolutely awful. What we know is a a wooden boat, as you rightly said, carrying at least 150 migrants, including women and children, and we know of at least one newborn was on board. They set sail from the city of Izmir in Turkey. That's on the Aegean coast. They left several days ago, and we believe that the boat was overcrowded. They hit bad weather. The boat was no match for the rough seas. It sadly crashed into the rocks and it broke apart. Now, we understand that 80 people were rescued. And there are reports that many of those on board just didn't know how to swim. Some of them were found clinging onto pieces of the boat and they were brought back to shore. They were the lucky ones. And we saw images of them huddled together, wrapped in blankets, trying to stay warm. Now, as for the death toll, we understand at least 58 people are dead. Con uh, numerosi migranti 
The search and rescue effort started at 5 a.m. local time on Sunday. We saw video of the Italian Coast Guard searching for survivors from the air. And in the sea, emergency services were also combing the beach. There was debris everywhere, peppered with personal belongings, as you can imagine. People leaving what little they have to start a new life. And we saw scattered sneakers and and backpacks. Now, the bad weather is slowing down that search and rescue effort. Uh, And we believe that the Italian Coast Guard will try again on Monday morning at first light. So sadly, the death toll is expected to rise. Well, and Lama, I mean, this is a horror story all in itself, but it's almost become this kind of recurring nightmare, particularly in Italy, but really throughout this sort of the Mediterranean coast, right? You're absolutely right, Brad. I mean, it's not only Italy, it's other European countries as well. We've seen them arrive in Greece, even on our shores here in the UK, because the Mediterranean Sea is considered to be, you know, it's one of the most dangerous crossings for migrants, but it also happens to be the main landing point to enter Europe. And many of those migrants are escaping conflicts and poverty. You know, some of the people on board uh, that wooden boat came from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, and Somalia, and they're setting off searching for a better future, a better life. Uh, And for them, this outweighs those risks. So all the memories come up uh, on that journey, what they experienced, saw people dying, saw people uh, going missing in front of them. They don't want to go back to these places. The statistics uh, are staggering, Brad. So far this year, more than 13,000 migrants just this year alone Mm. have made that perilous journey to enter Italy. And according to MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, last year alone, 2,367 people died trying to cross the Mediterranean. Her success should not be used only to talk about immigration and say that migrants are criminals, as Salvini said. That's not true. But what those governments are trying to do is that they're trying to stop the number of people trying to enter and trying to make it difficult. So when these people do make the crossing and do survive the crossing, it's very hard for them to start a life. They're often put in camps, uh, for example, and they're they're put through a process. It's not very easy. Pope Francis was thinking of all those victims during his Sunday service at the Vatican. He said that I pray for each of them, for the missing and for the other migrants who survived. Well, that's kind of where you see the tension, both in governments like Italy and, you know, here in North America, where Pope Francis is advocating kind of for the rights of these people, saying that they need to get here more than we need to keep them out. And yet the government there in Italy is basically saying we got to shut down these routes, not not encourage more people to take them. And yet that results in people feeling like they're so close to the coastline they can taste it getting on these boats that are then just completely overwhelmed. All right. Lama Hassan in London. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I grew up in Southern California, and I was not accustomed to saying, watch out for the snow. And yet recently, that's exactly what residents have been warning each other as a huge West Coast storm now sweeps across the entire country. ABC senior meteorologist Rob Marciano is with us. Rob, this is starting to feel like a a truly national weather event. What is going on here? Well, we've had a number of coast-to-coast storms this winter already, Brad, uh, but this one is extremely powerful and unusual, as you mentioned, to get snow all the way into Southern California and this much snow. The extraordinary pictures have been in Southern California in the way of the low elevation snows. Legit snow. 
Like, no joke. Uh, you know, not just a little uh, dusting, but legit snow. There were whiteout conditions across the Cajon Pass. The drivers going through, it was dangerous. There was a lot of snow coming down, a lot of wind. Bit of a dusting around the Hollywood sign, and, and then the, the more typical things that we see in winter in California, and that's the, the extreme flooding. This area has been pummeled by rain the last few days. You can see the LA River right behind me. Those water levels much, much higher than they usually are and there is no end in sight. Uh, we saw that around the Burbank Airport, the, the mudslides that we saw as well. <laughs> blizzard conditions, the first blizzard warning ever in San Bernardino County. Here's my house, my cars. We've already shoveled this multiple times. <sighs> And it's moving very, very quickly, and uh, everybody in the lower 48 is going to get at least a piece of this thing. And you mentioned that we've now seen a, a few of these kind of going from coast to coast. Is that unusual, and, and what kind of impact does that have? It's, it's not that unusual to see storms go coast to coast, especially in the wintertime. But it is to see one of this magnitude do it, and to do it, to go through California so slowly, and then it kind of slingshot itself into the into the plains and into the east coast so the, the way this particular storm has acted is far different from any of the other coast to coast storms that we've seen this year they don't always carry over the rockies but this one is so deep and so powerful and it's just being slingshot across the country most of us know that the, the weather and, and this part of the world goes from west to east, so, and it's, it does it more quickly in the wintertime because that's when our jet stream is the most powerful. And we're seeing that certainly with this storm. It is humming across the country in a hurry. All right, Rob Marciano reporting. Thank you so much. You got it, Brad. Good to talk to you. Next up on Start Here, time for a field trip, our final installment of our series on how black history is taught after the break. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the final week of Black History Month, and we spent much of this month describing the controversies dominating classrooms and school board meetings in states across the country. 
Hello, everyone. I'm just going to do a quick head count. But far away from those classrooms in Lower Manhattan are people like Stacy Toussaint. What made this transatlantic slave trade that we're going to talk about different? It's Saturday afternoon. My producer Iru and I have tagged along with a group of tourists, including a few New Yorkers, for a walking tour of some of the city's historic sites. Okay, so this is the former Alexander Hamilton Custom House, now the Museum of the American Indian. We're standing in front of what was a federal building completed in 1907. Out front are these four statues, human figures representing the continents of the world. So after slavery was over, but yet it reflected the racial attitude of the time. So. This is Europe. What do you notice about Europe, right? She's on a throne, right? She has a crown. Stacy points out that right next to Europe is America, leaning forward, a torch lighting his way, the wheel of industry under his hand. Then off to the right, in a corner, is the only naked figure. That is Africa. Did Africa have a hard night? She's knocked out, she's nude, and not even a throne, that's a hewn rock. This sculpture is like distinctly unflattering, which on a fancy federal building with a fancy sculptor tells you just how normalized this impression of Africans would be. What I love about architecture in New York is it tells a story. And this one actually tells several stories. And one of the stories is the economic reasons why New York would be so pro-slavery. Okay, any questions? That's right, pro-slavery. I never thought of New York as pro-slavery. We fought for the North and the Civil War, right? But this is a walking tour devoted to the role that New York City played in the slave trade, which it turns out is a pretty big role. The vision was to make New York into one of the slaveholding capitals of the North, and that's what ended up happening. Stacy walks us to a random corner that turns out to be the site of the first open-air slave market in the U.S. So when you think about slavery, of course, many people think about big plantations. And big plantations did exist in Brooklyn, but in lower Manhattan, um, they're very tight quarters. She walks us to a well where enslaved people got their water for the day, describing this vast unpaid workforce. In this big, bold, progressive city, slavery wasn't banned until a couple decades before the Civil War. Most New Yorkers who enslaved people, about 40% of New York households had enslaved people in Manhattan, and they enslaved one to two people. They used slavery as a way of establishing their wealth, and then they ended up going to all these different areas of business and the judiciary and other things. And throughout this tour, my jaw keeps dropping more and more. Not only are the horrors of slavery more and more visceral, but the connections to modern America are right there under my feet. I learned that some of the loan deals that gave Wall Street banks their wealth included enslaved people as collateral. You failed to pay back your loans, that bank made sure they got their money from your slavery sales. And these banks exist today. I wondered where that money would be now if those deals hadn't gone through, where black New York landholders would be today if their prime Manhattan real estate had been forcibly taken from them. So with that, let's head over to the African Barrow Ground. We end this tour where the remains of thousands upon thousands of African-Americans were discovered in 1991, a discovery that was said to shatter centuries of silence. In what is now one of the most significant American archaeological projects of the 20th century, these remains were sent to Howard University and then carefully, reverently returned to their final resting place. Next to a monument that evokes the slave hold of a ship is now a peaceful patch of grass under the shade of New York skyscrapers with seven mounds protruding upwards. Of course, we can't go back in time and rescue these people. But the hope is that in learning the stories of those who had privilege 
and chose to use it to save others, of those who risk everything on the hope of survival, that you will think about what's happening today and think about how you can be impactful. What can you do in your generation as they did in theirs? Have you ever been to this spot? I'm not. I've like never seen this. Oh, uh... I've lived, I've lived in New York for 20 years. The reason Iru and I took this tour is because we were inspired by the work of Clint Smith. He's an author and poet, and in his book, How the Word is Passed, he spent months traveling to different sites around the U.S., examining how important these places are to our reckoning with slavery. And so in our last installment of this series about how black history is being taught, we got Clint Smith with us. Clint, we've been spending this month talking about history in the classroom, and yet something stuck out to me from your reporting is how... Some of this only seems to click when you're not in the classroom, when you're out in the world. And I guess my first question is, what does this say about where we are right now in terms of dealing with race? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for me, the reason I wrote this book and the reason I focused on spaces and places in particular was because there's nothing like putting your body in the place where history happened. I remember going to Whitney Plantation in Louisiana and standing in one of the original slave cabins, a cabin that had been there for 200 years that the descendants of enslaved people lived in until the 1970s. Mm. And I remember thinking about this, and I have a, I'm a father, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and imagining what it would be like if I went to sleep and I put my children to bed and I woke up the next day and my children were gone. And I had no idea where they went. I had no idea who had taken them. I had no idea if I would ever see them again. It's sort of an unfathomable sort of horror and cruelty. And I don't think that that sort of sense of proximity to that history is possible without putting your body in the places where that history took place. And, you know, they're standing in a place and then there's learning from that place. And, and you went to each of these places and they all had kind of different approaches to how they imbued you with that sense of being there, with that sense of knowledge. I mean, what did you sort of notice about how the different, I guess, techniques and the different ways of helping you understand where you were standing? Yeah, some of the places uh, were very explicit about their relationship to the history of slavery, but there were other places that were very evasive about their relationship to this history. I think about Angola Prison. Angola Prison is in Louisiana. It's the largest maximum security prison in the country. It's 18,000 acres wide, bigger than the island of Manhattan. It's a place where 75% of the people held there are black men. Over 70% of them are serving life sentences. And it's built on top of a former plantation. Wow. And what I tell people is that if you were to go to Germany and you had the largest maximum security prison in Germany, and it was built on top of a former concentration camp in which the people held there were disproportionately Jewish, that place would quite rightfully be a global emblem of anti-Semitism. It would be abhorrent. It would be disgusting. We would never allow a place like that to exist because it would so clearly run counter to all of our moral and ethical sensibilities. And yet here in the United States, we have the largest maximum security prison in the country where the vast majority of the people are black men serving life sentences, many of whom were sentenced as children, who are picking crops while someone watches over them on horseback with a gun over their shoulder. That's literally, that's literally something you see when you go there? Yeah. I mean, literally, I remember I was there with a guy named Norris Henderson. And Norris had been incarcerated at Angola for almost 30 years. And he's been out for about 20. And we were on the bus and we were leaving Angola after our tour. And in the distance, we saw these men who were working in the fields. And they were being watched over by a guard on horseback with a gun across their lap. And Norris looked at the man and he looked at me and he was like, Clint, I can't begin to explain to you what it felt like to pick cotton for seven cents an hour 
and wonder if my own ancestors have picked cotton in the same field 200 years ago, mm-hmm. right? So for the people who are incarcerated in Angola, this history is not an abstraction. It's not a metaphor. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's in their bodies. It's in their bones. It's in the calluses in their hands. And what does it mean that the largest prison in the country filled with black men serving life sentences is built on top of a former plantation? Well, and that's what I'm trying to figure because I feel like the argument against some of this is why? Like, okay, so yes, that history exists, but like, what are we not going to build prisons anymore? Like, why is it so important for you when you take a trip to New Orleans or to Manhattan? You're there to do something else. Why is it so important to be relentlessly reminded of these deep roots to oppression? Because I think that's kind of the discomfort for so many, particularly white folks, but but in general, why this seems to get so much flack, right? That discomfort. Because if you are encountering daily reminders, if you are encountering street signs and historical sites and museums, monuments, memorials that are reminding you of what has been done throughout this country's history. It has the possibility to disabuse you of the idea that the reason one community looks one way and another community looks another way is somehow simply because of the people in those communities and not because of what has been done to those communities or extracted from those communities generation after generation after generation. One of the places that I go in the book is is Monticello, because I think that Jefferson sort of embodies the cognitive dissonance of this country mm-hmm. in the sense that he is someone who wrote one of the most important documents in the history of the Western world, and also someone who enslaved over 600 people mm-hmm. over the course of his lifetime, including four of his own children. And I was on a tour with these two women, and they're both two older white women. Their faces had turned white. Their mouths hung agape. Uh, they were deeply emotionally impacted by by what was happening. And so I went up to them after, and I said, can you tell me a little bit about what you're, how you're feeling? And she was just like, man, he really took the shine off the guy. She was just like, I had no idea Jefferson owned slaves. I had no idea Monticello was a plantation. Mind you, these are folks who bought plane tickets, rented cars, got hotel rooms, who came to the site as a sort of pilgrimage to see the home of one of our founding fathers and yet had no idea that he was an enslaver. And I think that that is an example of what is true for so many people, is that there are so many people across this country who don't understand the history of this country, who don't understand the history of our founding, and as a result, don't understand the way that the remnants and residue of this institution continue to shape our social, political, and economic infrastructure. Uh, And so it can be very hard for people to accept this new information because it often runs counter to the story that they've been told about America, the story that is deeply entangled in people's sense of self. Oh, like my country's a fair country, therefore I'm a fair person, therefore like I know this to be true. That's a very personal moment that if that goes away. Absolutely. It's like very intrinsic to how people understand who they are in the world. And so if that version of the American story is challenged, even if it's in a way that is more intellectually robust, more empirically grounded, more factual, it challenges not only the story of America, but it challenges who they understand themselves to be in relationship to this country that is now not the version of the country that they've been told it was. And so suddenly it's not just an inconvenient need to reassess American history. It's like an existential crisis for many people. I think about the educators who are out here on the front lines, who are sometimes risking their jobs, risking their livelihoods to teach our students like a a factual, honest, complex story of American history. I am just so filled with gratitude. I'm so filled with 
inspiration. I've, and, and I know that the work that they do is, is sowing the seeds for, you know, generations from now to benefit from. Clint Smith, the author of How the Word is Passed, really appreciate you taking this much time and uh, thanks so much. Absolutely. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, there's some serious business going on in the funny pages right now. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. It was a comic strip that celebrated the working stiff by poking fun at middle management. But now, Dilbert is getting let go. The Chicago Tribune says it is dropping the Dilbert comic strip because of, quote, racist remarks made by its creator. Over the weekend, hundreds of newspapers made the decision to stop publishing the comic strip because of racist comments made by Dilbert's creator, Scott Adams. And when I say racist, like, there was nothing coded about this. It wasn't innuendo or insensitive language. Now, Scott Adams, in a YouTube live stream, said that white Americans should, quote, get the hell away from black people. Apparently, he had seen a poll showing only a slim majority of black people agreed with the phrase, it's okay to be white. Ignoring the fact that that exact phrase has been used by the white supremacist movement, Adams took offense and said this poll showed black people were, quote, a hate group and that it's not in white people's interest to support them, which might not be the vibe you got from Dilbert, which was basically office space before the movie Office Space. Is there any way this collapse of civilization thing could affect me personally? I think it might. Okay, then. You have my full support to fix the problem. Started in 1989, it skewers corporate bosses as inept and out of touch. At one point, it was popular enough to become a TV show. Money is no object. Unless, of course, you plan to spend it. But in recent years, it had been Scott Adams who'd appeared more and more out of touch. When a gunman opened fire on a crowd at the 2019 California Festival, Adams took the opportunity to promote his app. In recent years, he began writing about men's rights, but this weekend, even he admitted that these racist comments, which he defended on YouTube, would likely derail the rest of his career. And in a country that's beset by arguments over how sensitive we should be, it's easy to immediately take sides and talk about so-called cancel culture. But several newspapers pointed out, this one isn't close. This is not about ideological debates. This This was a writer who was going full segregationist. There's nothing cultured about this. He was just canceled. I was never a huge Dilbert fan. I'm more of a far side guy, maybe some peanuts, but there's never been a better comic strip than Calvin and Hobbes. And if you know of one better than Calvin and Hobbes, please tell me. Hit us up on Twitter at StartHereABC because I want to check that out. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.